The information provided on this podcast does not, and is not intended to, constitute legal, financial, or tax advice. I think there were a lot of surprises. I think one surprise is just how bad existing tools were. Like on the finance and accounting side, when we met in Denver, everything that you were describing as a solution was directly solving problems I was experiencing as an ops person managing Sega finances and accounting. I'm like, oh my God, this is literally like the tool that I've been waiting for. Hi, and welcome. This is Web 2.5, a show where we invite operators to share the gritty, behind-the-scenes truth of what it's like to build the organizations of tomorrow while keeping teams paid, compliant, and running today. I'm Grace, co-founder and CEO of Domo. Previously, I led operations for early-stage Web3 startups. It was pretty painful, so I want to discuss the challenges that I, and many others, face in setting up and scaling crypto projects and how we might overcome them. In today's episode, we are welcoming Winston Zhang, co-founder at Sega Finance. Sega Finance provides high-yield products for DeFi users, which are powered by exotic options. And today, we're going to reflect on Sega's company-building journey from late 2021, which is about when they began, to today, and how they've navigated setting up their company financial operations along the way. So with all of that, Winston, welcome. Super excited to have you on because we've known each other for so long now in crypto. So it's just nice to be able to do this together. And Sega is, I guess at this point, long-term partner slash customer of ours, of Domo's. Um, and you guys were one of the very first users on our platform. So I'm super excited to be able to introduce you all to our audience. Maybe we can kick off with more about Sega. What is Sega and who is it for? Yeah. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm actually like really excited to be on this. Like you mentioned, we're huge fans and users of Domo and even outside of the business context of crypto, getting to know you, just actually being friends. I'm so excited to be here. Sega is actually the first DeFi protocol to have launched on-chain exotic options structured products. So what we do is we allow DeFi investors to earn safer, higher yield on their USDC stablecoin, especially in volatile market environments, while also receiving downside protection. So to date, more than 250 million of trading volume has actually been processed through Sega. And we're also now live on Ethereum mainnet in addition to Solana. So there's lots of avenues for users to get to know and to use our products. And yeah, who is it for? Sega is for any DeFi investor who is holding USDC and wants really great yielding opportunities while also receiving downside protection to ensure that they can generate good returns and not lose principal while investing in crypto. So maybe if we dig into that a little bit more, the downside protection and kind of the quote, safer yield that Sega is able to offer is that where the exotic options come in? And is that the foundation for your product? Yeah, exactly. So real quick, where the downside protection comes in is there's an exotic option characteristic that's part of the structured product that we've created on chain. In technical jargon, it's called a barrier option, specifically a knock-in barrier. So the benefit for users is that it actually offers them the ability to not lose any of their deposited principal even if there's severe market downturns of 20%, 30%, et cetera, up until markets drop below the barrier. 
what that means is users can basically choose from the strategy catalog and say, hey, I want to receive downside protection of 50%. So that means that unless crypto markets were to fall by 50%, based on today's prices, Ethereum would have to fall to $900 before there's any risk to the investors' deposits. And so that's a really strong level of downside protection that's enabled through this exotic options characteristic. That's actually just one of the three problems that we're trying to solve when we started working on Sega. Those three problems were, number one, general decline of yields in DeFi. Number two, a lack of safety and lack of ways of getting good returns without risking lots of money. And then the third problem was the general lack of innovation in the space. And what's really cool is that these exotic structured products that we created have higher yield, they offer more downside protection, and they're safer for users, and they're super innovative. And so it was actually just a really elegant solution that tackled all through these pretty pressing problems for DeFi users today. Winston, who bears that downside risk in that situation? Is it the person selling the option or offering the option contract, or is it Sega for those of us that are not nuanced investors? The risk is borne by the user. What we tell everyone is that these products are safer, but they're not 100% risk-free. So Ultimately, with every single one of the Sega trading strategies, the users are the ones that are bearing the risk. In the case that there's a severe market downturn, they could risk losing some of their deposits. And so these strategies are for users who have a moderately bullish sentiment on the market, and they specifically don't believe that markets would fall past the principal protection barrier. Basically, we have different levels of protection for users. Some of them could be a 30% drop. Some of them are as high as a 90% protection. So there's lots of different choices for users in terms of their risk reward appetite. But to your original point, in this case, if markets were to move severely and fall, in the case of a black swan event, the users are bearing the losses. And in the case where the markets don't hit severely downward, then that downside protection above the barrier is presumably there's somebody on the other side of that. Is that Sega that's covering that or is that another user on the other end of that contract? Yeah. For example, like in the case that Ethereum doesn't fall to $900 in the next 27 days, users generate yields and the yields ranges from 5% to 20% APY, depending on which strategies users pick. And that's really one of the other main benefits of these products that we're building, which is that they offer much higher yielding opportunities for users. So in the case that in the next 27 days, which is the duration of one of our product faults, if markets don't fall below the barrier, then users stand to make between 5% to 20% APY. And who the other side is. So Sega is a middleman provider of these products. We create the smart contracts that enable these products to be traded on chain. But none of the risks are actually being taken on Sega's books. We're just a platform that's offering this. And so users that come and make deposits are effectively selling options. And then on the other side, we have crypto market makers who are looking to hedge positions on their own books. They're looking to buy options as like a discounted hedge. So those are the two players involved in this trade, which would be crypto users looking to generate yields and market makers who are buying options for their books. Got it. Super helpful. I'm curious as well, and this might be helpful for anyone who's listening to kind of just position the different products in their mind. There are other DeFi products that offer yield to users. 
How do you generally compare to maybe some of the bigger names or I'm curious as well if you guys have done any back testing for your strategy versus existing strategies and what the results of that look like? Yeah, so we've done lots of back testing and we actually have two blog articles in our Sega blog that cover the full in-depth analytical results of the back test. It's hard to go through all the numbers verbally, but at a high level, we have three different option strategies and there's different backtest results for each of those different strategies. The first strategy is called a pure options vault. The second strategy is called bond plus options vaults. And then the third strategy is called a leveraged option vault. And the results of the backtests for our pure options vaults showed that when we look back in the last six months where we saw one market crash, so this is basically FTX, we saw stable returns for both the most aggressive strategy that we offer, which is titled Supercharger. And we also saw stable returns for the most conservative product, which is called Starboard. And in the case of a 21-month backtest, which involves two significant market crashes, the Sega strategies outperformed the alternative investment, which a lot of investors do, which is to buy and hold spot baskets. And so they're still delivering steady yields from the vaults and it's outperforming investors who might've otherwise just bought Bitcoin or ETH and held it through two market downturns in the last approximately like two years. So those are the access results for the pure options vaults for our bond and options vaults, which is strategy number two. Those are some of our most conservative products for those strategies. Our backtest showed really strong PL for investors, even despite the two market crashes, it's the knock-in barrier, like the downside prediction was never breached for investors in those ultra-conservative strategies. And so it delivered positive yield and also outperforms alternative buying and holding strategies. And then lastly, our third strategy is, it's a new product that we actually just launched in the last month. And it's more geared towards experienced DeFi traders who are looking for leveraged returns who want much higher yields, but are also willing to risk higher losses potentially to get those yields. The batch results for this leveraged third strategy shows on the upside, investors could potentially get 4X on their existing deposits in an eight month period. But if in the case of a market downturn, such as an FTX or a Terra lunar crisis, they would experience magnified losses. So at the end of the day, like most of Sega's trading strategies showed really strong PL for users. I think the gotcha is against the market crashes, like the severe sort of black swan events that happen in crypto. For those events, depending on the level of downside protection that users have picked, that sort of alters the return profile for them. But overall, yeah, like the backtests are really strong. And that's when we're just looking at the products in and themselves. We also did a lot of analyses to compare these products against how they might perform to other strategies, like I mentioned, which is if you were just to buy and hold spot and see how that would perform over time. And a while ago, we had to refresh this, but we also took a look at the relationship between exotic options strategies versus vanilla options strategies. And what we typically find is that exotic options return two to three times more yield than vanilla option strategies do. And that's actually a relationship that also exists in TradFi. When TradFi investors are thinking about how much yield they could be getting from trading options, typically exotic options will generate two to three times more yield than vanilla strategies. And the reason for that is simply because of the way that the structure is set up. When you sell a basket option, which is an exotic type of a product, it contains multiple underlyings and that generates higher yield for users. Would you say that you've always been very well versed in these financial concepts or was there like a certain moment in time where you, Winston, became like a crypto degen? 
I studied business finance in college, but I graduated in 2014. So the last time I had to think about options pricing or like the block rules formula was in like the early 2010s. And since then, most of my career has been in Silicon Valley, building technology companies, working at startups, building my own technology company through Y Combinator. It's been like really fun to brush off the dusty tomes of knowledge as they pertain to finance and to option. And it has been really fun to not just like refresh old concepts, but actually to learn brand new concepts, especially in the world of exotic options, which isn't just a fairly rare concept for me, but even in TradFi, most of the options traders at a bank, the majority of them will be trading and working on vanilla options and a small subset will be working on exotic options. And so it actually makes the skill set and this knowledge domain pretty rare, which is why for my co-founder, Arissa, who previously traded these products at UBS, like it's so cool that we're able to learn and bring these products to a broader audience in crypto as well. I think personally, I'd say there's like a huge ramp for me in terms of going from early crypto user to getting rugged way too many times and feeling scared about investing in DeFi and then just really learning the ropes, figuring out how to do better diligence and research, figure out what's generating real yield for users versus generating ponzinomics or emission-based yields where you could actually start to lose a lot of money, even though they're advertising these big flashy APYs. And so I think the journey to being much more savvy as an investor in crypto has definitely taken some time, but it's very rewarding. And it's also super fun just to see how much innovation there has been and there still continues to be in DeFi. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that back in the good old days of DeFi summer and constantly going from pool to pool and yield farming. <laughs> it never gets boring. <laughs> I do want to dig into your background a bit more because I think it's the breadth of experiences that you've had are really interesting. But before we get into that, I also want to follow up with one more question about exotic options. Why are there so few people that are even in TradFi trading these options or why is that expertise so niche? It's relative to the market size. The majority of the TradFi options market trades vanilla options. So they need more traders to be able to deal with that flow. With that being said, the options market overall is like a multi-trillion dollar market. And so even though you have a much smaller headcount for traders at the desk who are working on the exotic flow, the total market size of that exotic flow is still in the trillion of dollars. But it's just like a supply and demand answer there's a lot more vanilla options being traded. And so they just need more traders to cover that. That's one answer. The second part to that too, is that the mathematical analysis that's required to also calculate your exotic options positions to be able to price those exotic options products. It's actually very different from vanilla options. So as a bit of a one-on-one calculating options prices is really important and very fundamental to the foundation of options products. With vanilla options, there's a formula called block scrolls, which enables anyone to calculate the price of a call or a put, a vanilla call or a put by applying this formula. And as long as you have the given inputs in the formula, you can calculate the price. When we're dealing with exotic options, calculating the price of that exotic option becomes a lot more challenging because you don't have this standardized expectation for settlement, strike, underlying asset. By nature of it not being vanilla, it means that it becomes very customized and challenging to price. And so for almost every exotic options product, you need to have some sort of model that's calculating all the various scenarios of where these underlying assets might move in the future and how that changes prices. And so you actually have to build Monte Carlo simulation models to be able to generate the prices. In addition to the supply and demand of the total flow, 
that's going towards vanilla versus exotics. There's also just like a much higher hurdle in terms of the math knowledge and the requirements to also be able to work on exotic options. So it actually makes it like a pretty challenging and rare skill set when you can find it, which is why for us, being able to hire some of these exotic options traders from Fatfly and bring them onto the team has been so rewarding because we really pride ourselves in being able to find those really brilliant traders, given how rare this skill is. Got it. That makes sense. Very cool. So getting back into now kind of your background a bit more. So you were a product manager at DoorDash, and then you co-founded a company called Orbiter, which went through YC, and that was more focused on product analytics and automating that process for product and engineering teams. And now you are co-founder of Sega, which is working on DeFi protocol for exotic options. So all these startups are very different businesses operating in very different industries. How do you compare and contrast your experiences? It's so hard to compare these different companies because to your point, they're in different industries. They were at different sizes of maturity. And I think for me, when I think back to those experiences, probably the first thing I think about is how much did I grow in each of those roles? And for the company itself, what was the problem that the company was trying to solve? In that regard, looking across these different opportunities, DoorDash, Orbiter, and now Sega, it's actually very consistent. In all those roles across these three companies, it was super high growth and super challenging for me to constantly push myself and learn and develop my own skills when it felt like things were potentially plateauing or I wasn't really growing or learning as much. That's when I started to feel like it was time to move on. And so I think that growth journey, that like high velocity growth journey has always been really consistent across these three roles. I would say the second thing is the problems that these three companies are tackling. That's something that you actually learn, especially going through YC, but they really stress the importance of focusing on problems and not on solutions and trying to reverse engineer the problem. And that's actually how you know that you're working on something that potentially could have really high impact, potentially grow to be something really big, is as long as you're super clear on the problem that you're trying to solve, you have a really clear vision to continuing to make the solution better and better until you solve that problem. And when I think about these three experiences, DoorDash was trying to create this logistical engine to power deliveries for the last mile for any merchants in not just the US, but in the world. And that's a really challenging problem because you have to deal with users, you have to deal with merchants, you have to deal with drivers, and you have to create this logistic system that's able to support those three sides of the marketplace. And so the problem is really challenging. It was really exciting to work on. And then similarly for us during YC, when we built the company Orbiter, the solution in a nutshell was anomaly monitoring and alerting in an automated way for non-engineers. And the reason we built this product is because it directly solved problems that all of our three founders had experienced working in our previous companies. We experienced it, one co-founder experienced it at Facebook, my brother experienced it working at Tesla, and I experienced it at DoorDash. And so it was clear that this is a problem that many people were experiencing, and so it made sense to try and solve that problem, especially given that we knew how large of a potential market that could be. And then finally for Sega, you know, we're tackling problems around declining yields, lack of innovation, lack of safety. And these are problems I believe will continue to persist in the crypto industry and that we have a really great solution for through exotic options. And so I think, yeah, to your point, like these companies are so different from one another, but also in some regard, they are similar 
in terms of your ability to learn and your ability to solve really real, like meaningful problems? Yeah, I feel like knowing when it's time to change your focus to something else or knowing when it's time to move on from something that you're working on is very hard because I think there is a part of you as a founder that's, no, I can invest more into this. I know if I just work harder at this, I can figure it out. But then there is also that other side of you, which is kind of like that, where you know that you're in the position to steer the company and you're like, okay, there are people that are on this boat with me. And do I truly feel like we're headed in a direction that is meaningful for everyone? It's very hard to make that decision at a company level. And it's also very hard to make that decision on a product level because, you know, we're running experiments. I'm sure you guys are as well at a product level within the company to see, is this direction working? Is this direction getting us closer to PMF? So I guess on that note, have you gotten any insight, would you say, on uncovering this magic of PMF or product market fit? I think that is truly the number one question to be asked and answered for every single founder, regardless of the size of the company. I mean, I joined DoorDash end of 2016. I think they had maybe 400 people in total at the time. I think there were hundred plus in San Francisco, which is where I worked. And for a series C company that raised money from Sequoia, I think I expected there to just be more clarity on PMF. But then what's clear when you join is that growth is always a question. Retention is always a question. And making sure that you're actually building something that users want is like always on the top of the mind. And obviously that question becomes even more of a question as you move down the chain towards smaller and smaller early stage seed companies. But one thing that I have found to be true, which is classic YC mantra is talk to customers. And I think across all of these experiences, finding product market fit only happens if you continue spending time talking to customers, getting customer feedback and actually selling a product to them. And what that also means is that there should be one clear growth KPI for the products or for the business to know if you're actually growing and if you're making progress towards PMF. And I think it's really funny because the first time I heard this saying, my initial reaction was like, no shit, who's not talking to customers? But then I think as you start building a company, you realize, wait, there's actually so much stuff that demands your attention. And there's so many distractions in a given day. And if you think about where your time is being allocated, if the majority of that time isn't being allocated towards selling, talking to customers, getting feedback, focusing on that cycle of customer feedback, product improvements, customer feedback, selling, selling, like always talking to customers, that truly has been the number one thing to be doing to try and demystify that question around product market fit. That is the one goal for every single founder to be in a spot where they can say, damn, yeah, I think I actually have real product market fit, but it's tough. It's very tough. Winston, what do you think about, even if you are approaching product market fit or you feel like you've unlocked it, then you have the question of competition. And one thing I've noticed is that investors will bring up all kinds of competing products, things that are in your space as well. But when we talk to customers, none of those things ever come up. It's such a different world on the customer side. Have you seen anything like that in your case as well? Definitely. What we try to apply internally at Sega is something that I actually learned firsthand while I was working at DoorDash, which is that you truly have to focus on customers first and foremost, and not competitors, because you're building a product for your customers, not the competitors. So if you spend all of your mind share focusing on what competitors are doing, that takes all of your attention away from thinking about what problems our customers are experiencing, how can we make our products better to solve those problems, create more value for customers. I remember Tony at DoorDash getting really mad and people would 
bringing up what competitors were doing because he would just say, we shouldn't be focusing on competitors. Like ask yourself what we're doing to make the product better for customers. And so I think that really intense focus on customers is so important, especially when there's lots of potential competitors out there that could be very distracting and everyone's doing something different or launching a new feature and a new bell and whistle. Does that mean that people like didn't monitor their competitors? No, you still need to have secondary initiative or maybe like a small sub team that's just working on competitor monitoring, maybe on a weekly basis, relative growth rates and performance in the market. It gives you some incentive to keep beating your competitors and making things better for customers. But that shouldn't be the overwhelming focus for either the product team or for the management team, because that's not where the thinking should be spent. The time should be spent thinking on how to make the products better for customers. Companies don't die because of their competitors. They die because the team stopped working on their company. You're far more likely to die internally than because of what competitors are doing, which I think is really real. It's like... You have to keep focusing on building a product, growing the metrics, and having the conviction to keep working on the problems. And oftentimes in a lot of markets, in a lot of really successful companies, stories that you hear about, those companies are the ones that like outlasted their competitors. And I feel like in crypto too, especially in the last five months, we've seen lots of competitors in the market either closing shop or changing directions. And at one point in time, those competitors would have been questions where it's, what are you doing to fend off these competitors? These competitors decided to peace. That's why I think it shows if you spend all of your time focusing on competitors, it can be very distracting and takes your attention away from what actually matters. There are so many things to handle as a founder that you're constantly having to ask yourself about your priorities anyway. So I guess to that end, what are the areas of company building that you spend your time on? That's a great question. So the biggest focus for me is on the growth side of the company. For us, growth, there's three main aspects to that. One is sales, one is marketing, and one is community building. On the sales side, we have a really clear objective on a quarterly basis, which is to grow the dollar deposits in Sega. On the marketing side, it's like a lot less tangible. It's more about increasing SEO, creating content to grow our engagement and awareness through Twitter, having in-person activations, digital activation, things like that. And then on the community building side, it's making sure that we're continuing to engage the community. Those three pillars make up the overall growth aspect of the business. And that's where I spend most of my time on Ox as well, which covers things like finance and accounting, HR. It's like a fun little mental shift for me to take off the growth hat, put on the ops hat, and then focus on making things as efficient and fast as possible which I love Domo for because it helps me to execute our finance and accounting processes really accurately and quickly. So the offset of the business is also covered by me, but definitely like growth is where most of my time and mental capacity is focused. Those are very different hats to switch between. <laughs> Maybe if we focus more on, even though you spend most of your time on the growth side, since we're talking about Web 2.5 and we're recording this podcast for crypto operators, if we talk about the ops part of your role a little bit more, was there anything that surprised you about running ops in crypto when you first started out doing this? I think there were a lot of surprises. I think one surprise is just how bad existing tools were. I think in Web 2 and building a company, there's so much incredible tools that have been around for many years. The UI UX is polished, the functionality is polished, and then coming to crypto, it's wow, everything sucks and you have to learn totally new processes and just jerry-rig tools to get things to work. Like on the finance and accounting side, when we met in Denver and you were telling me about Propeller at the time, 
TBT propeller, everything that you were describing as a solution was directly solving problems I was experiencing as an ops person managing Sega finances and accounting. I'm like, oh my God, this is literally like the tool that I've been waiting for. I was just surprised by how bad the tooling was. I think I was also really surprised by just how much stuff gets done in spreadsheets, even to this day. It's hilarious how valuable Google Sheets are and how we have a spreadsheet for this that tracks something, a spreadsheet for that. A lot of stuff happens in spreadsheets and it's amazing what you can do with a spreadsheet. But at the same time, there's also like a lot of inefficiencies to it. I'm sure a lot of that could be improved through better tooling so that it doesn't have to live in some folder in Google Drive. <laughs> yeah, no, we have definitely heard that a lot. I, to your point with spreadsheets, People use them a lot for good reason. They're flexible, they're simple to use, they're easy to understand, but also at a certain point in time, they really aren't scalable. Like when you have more things that you need to track, when you have more data or when you have more people on your team that are getting involved, then the effort that it takes to maintain that spreadsheet just increases exponentially. And Saul, I think you and I have spoken to a lot of teams where we've found this to be the case. First of all, it's so great to hear you say all these wonderful things about Domo. Thank you. And we have known each other for this long, actually. Like you said, when we met at ETH Denver in 2021, we were still called Propeller as a company. It wasn't mm -hmm. until several months later that we changed our name to Domo and updated our branding. But throughout the entire time, we've been chipping away at the same problem, which is how do we make running operations in crypto companies easier for the people that are responsible for those positions. So yeah, again, I think a lot of the things that you found surprising about running ops in crypto, we have heard that echoed across other teams that we've spoken to as well, for sure. Building on the spreadsheet observation and the notion that tools are pretty crude in this market, one thing that I've noticed and that we've confirmed through our customer research is that it's a low-hanging fruit. And I would also echo your point, Winston, that in Web 2, people are at the point in kind of the life cycle of Web 2 where they're all scrapping over pretty nuanced products, niche products that fit relatively smaller and smaller gaps. The strategy for startup founders is to get integrated into maybe a bigger player. But here in Web 3, there's all this opportunity to basically reinvent the wheel in all sorts of areas. And some people will look at that as a critique of Web3, right? That we're reinventing the wheel. But the truth is that those of us who are on the ground doing it know that there are some categorical differences between what we're building and what Web2 has built and other solutions in even just not technology-based solutions in finance, things that Web3 brings to the table that are truly innovative. And so from that perspective, we're so early in the life cycle arc of Web3, it feels oftentimes when we talk to other founders, their natural impulse, especially if they're coming from Web2, is to go into the very niche, to be as nuanced as possible, as sophisticated as possible in designing their product and finding a market for it. But the more we talk to customers, the more we realize things like, People just kind of want to evolve out of spreadsheets from Domo's perspective, which is really low-hanging fruit. Things like, I need to see all of my balances in one place across a bunch of different accounts, across maybe a couple of blockchain networks. You would think that would be a solved problem, but it really isn't for most of the teams that are working at Web3. 
So I definitely echo the observation that it's early going. And in some ways, we have to fight the urge to over-engineer or jump forward in time in the life cycle of this thing. And remember that people have quite simple problems. In the case of Sega and other structured product on the market, there are all these treasuries that we talk to that are looking for relatively safe yield. They're battling all these big forces at play, including regulation, that are threatening whatever strategies they are evaluating, potentially making them much riskier than just as pure financial products. And these are huge elemental forces, governments, public policy interests, the politics of it, all of which, even in your innovative approach to Sega, you basically have to take all of that into account and treat it like this whole thing could change at any moment from underneath us. It's not solid ground, I guess, is the point I'm making. So to kind of summarize that into a question, how do you guys look at the regulatory market or the regulatory situation and the legal and government factors at play as they relate to Sega? Is it something you think about a lot or is it something you just try to position yourself to not have to think about and avoid as much as possible? I think for us as a high-level principle, being compliant with the law is really important, but we also don't want to have to spend the majority of our day rethinking about regulation because again, that would be like super distracting. It would take away from time instead of working on growth and talking to customers. And so I think what we did is we've basically minimized as much of the regulatory risk as we can for Sega while maintaining compliance. When we created the company from a corporate structuring perspective, Sega is a Singaporean company. It's not an American company. And Singapore is a country that's very supportive of derivatives businesses. It's actually where a lot of banks and TradFi have their derivatives trading groups. And that's like one of the decisions that we made to make regulation work for us as opposed to against us. And we also got the help of really great legal counsel. We're advised by Goodwin and specifically our main point of contact there is a lawyer called John Servideo. And he's so awesome. He's also very experienced in the area of law as it pertains to TradFi structured products, because he previously had worked as in-house counsel at a major U.S. bank in this department. So he really understands our product, understands the TradFi laws governing this product. And so he's able to give us a really great legal advice as it pertains to maintaining compliance in America and more broadly in the world. And they've given us lots of advice on how to do that, make product decisions to reduce our regulatory risk. And at the end of the day, I think that's like our target, which is to make sure that we don't have to really think about the regulatory risk because we've already minimized it as much as we can, or we've minimized all of the major risk vectors. And then everything else, I mean, crypto, it's a bit of a question mark. The regulation is constantly changing. Regulators are constantly proposing new things. I would say there's probably like a regulation related headline at least once a week in the past few months. And so I think that's constantly evolving, but we're trying to just make it less of a worry for the business so that we can worry about other things. That uncertainty is scary, but there's also a ton of opportunity in there. There are a lot of potential competitors that just stay out because that feels like it's too much risk for them. As you say, if you build up a good base of advice, and I imagine nobody really has all the answers in today's environment, then the next challenge is how do you balance the advice you're getting with the things you want to do that may or may not involve taking on some risk? 
How do you guys deal with that when you get advice from your lawyers or whatever? And I'm a lawyer, so I know what it's like on that side of the table. We have an obligation to point out all the risks and can't give advice. I'm going to tell you this is risky, but you should just ignore me. (laughs) How do you as a team evaluate the advice that you get? I think it comes down to number one, trust, like how much you trust their expertise. And number two, it's like a decision-making framework or like a decision-making analysis at the end of the day for most of these questions, because there's always some risk involved. And so as long as you're able to get an understanding from the council about what's like the riskiness of this, and then what's the potential impact implications and where it has like super high implications and super high risk. How does that change your decision-making framework in terms of addressing it versus punting it? I think to some extent too, like we also take a look at what other players in the space are doing to address potentially like similar risks. And you just have to try and triangulate as best as you can with some of that information. But to your point, yeah, there's no black and white answer. Otherwise it would be too easy. Yeah. Strategy is always about trade-offs. I feel like every day, whether it's big decisions or small decisions, it's constantly evaluating those trade-offs and picking a direction and then going in that direction. So if we apply this decision-making framework and the work that you're doing on growth to the decision that Sega made to launch not only on Solana, but also to launch and go live on Ethereum, what was that decision process like for you all? And what went into evaluating that? Both of these ecosystems are quite different. So I can imagine that managing growth for two different ecosystems is challenging and also introducing Sega to the Ethereum community in general might be challenging as well. So curious how you navigated that. The decision-making framework to expand our presence to Ethereum was actually really simple. The harder question was which technical implementation do we want to pick to make that expansion happen? Specifically, do we want to build a bridging solution or do we want to rebuild Sega and relaunch brand new smart contracts on Ethereum that needs to be re-audited? But the decision was actually really easy because in order for us to grow faster, we need to acquire more users. And all of the majority of the users in crypto today who have significant USDC bags are on Ethereum mainnet. And that was also resounding feedback that we heard when we were talking to potential customers, having launched our Solana product was that a lot of the larger whales and larger funds were on Ethereum and they trusted Ethereum and they were curious about Solana, but they were evaluating that over a longer time frame. But if only Sega existed on Ethereum, then that would minimize the hurdles to trying Sega out and starting to actually deploy with Sega. So I think launching on Ethereum mainnet is we're literally just prioritizing the blockchains in descending order of where the majority of our potential users are. So that's actually like a really simple question. I think if FTX did not happen, we probably would have proceeded with our V1 technology solution, which was to actually leverage Wormhole and expand by using Wormhole's bridging solution to expand to Ethereum, it would have reduced engineering time by more than 2x. Things in crypto move so fast, having the time advantage and speed advantage is huge. So that was really appealing to us. But then once FTX happened, we were pretty quick to decide that instead of going with the bridging solution, it actually made sense to have Sega exist as a smart contract natively on Ethereum mainnet. There's always pros and cons. There's a lot of cons with now maintaining two separate co-bases. You have to pay for audits again. You now have to have this question of product parity. For example, our leveraged options vaults, they're only available on Ethereum and not Solana. 
So how do you maintain this different product catalog across different chains, especially if we're going to be expanding in the future, potentially to Arbitrum or Polygon or other chains. But with that being said, the benefits far outweigh the cons. We were actually super excited to be launching our product to Ethereum mainnet. And since we've launched on mainnet, it's been really such a joy to, especially when talking to customers, to be able to say, hey, it doesn't matter if you have funds on Ethereum or funds on Solana, you can now use Sega. The Solana experience is still really amazing. It's fast, it's cheap, and it's actually given us a bit of a unique position to pitch when we're talking to customers, which is that if they like Ethereum, wants down Ethereum, Sega is there and it's accessible. But if they're really worried about transaction fees, they can try Sega out on Solana. There's so many easy bridging solutions to get USDC into a phantom wallet on Solana. And so I think now it actually just gives us more offerings and more ways of acquiring users, which is great. And I imagine that as we expand to EVM compatible chains, other L2s, we'll just have even more in the toolkit when we're going to sell and going to talk to customers. We experience that as well. Like when we're building out Domo, being able to go to customers and say, if you have funds on Solana or Ethereum or Arbitrum, regardless of what chains you're on, you can plug your addresses into Domo and we can help you take care of it. So that's super awesome to hear the positive feedback that you guys have gotten since your Ethereum launch. I'll maybe wrap up our session here with some final questions. If you were to give advice to Winston from one year ago, what would you say to Winston? Would you warn him about FTX? <laughs> I would say don't buy that NFT, not still. <laughs> um, I think there's one like high-level advice, and then there's maybe one that's very like Sega-specific. One high-level advice I would give is to not be intimidated by crypto concepts. And I think, unfortunately, there's so much jargon and almost a sense of entitlement to discussing crypto concepts in such a convoluted, jargon-heavy way that it makes it harder for other people. Maybe it's like a power dynamic thing or this need to feel unique. But I think from the outside, a lot of things in crypto can seem really foreign or intense and people have egos and don't want to look stupid. But when you ask questions and when you read more into these protocols or ideas, a lot of things are very logical. They're very rational. And if you strip back some of the jargon, it really doesn't have to be intimidating at all. And so I would say, yeah, just always ask questions, always do more reading and don't let the jargon be a barrier from feeling like you can't actually understand how things work. Because I think I've had so many surprising instances repeatedly where it's like, oh, that's what this is. Oh, that makes so much sense. It's so intuitive. But why is it presented in such a convoluted, hard to understand way? That's one overall overarching piece of advice, even one year in, I would say it's still so true. There's still so much work that needs to be done to make these ideas more easy to understand and mainstream. And I think some of that even applies to ourselves. Like we're always thinking about ways of describing Sega and some of the options strategies that we're creating in a more familiar, user-friendly way that's less filled with jargon and that seems less intimidating. That's one piece of advice, like high level. I think having gone through the bear market was really interesting because it was shocking to see how little risk management a lot of founders or protocols actually implemented, which then meant that when FTX was going down, like there were so many people that were impacted, but it's because they rushed to gamble with their own treasury or not be mature enough to protect their users' funds. And 
one thing that I'm super proud of is, especially during FTX, a lot of the things that we implemented as a protocol to keep our user funds safe, for example, signing ISDA agreements with all the market makers that trade with Sega, initially some of those things felt unsexy or uncool because they were very trash by concepts for risk management. But at the end of the day, those things created so much value. And I think it showed who was caught with their pants down when things didn't go well. And I think it reminded us again that like, there's no need to potentially be swayed by some of that Twitter crypto culture at the expense of making good decisions for customers, especially about risk management in crypto. So yeah, looking back, big thumbs up to past Sega team for making these really strong risk management decisions that I think stood the test of time during FTX. Yeah, no, I think that's really important and just shows the conviction that you all had about what you were building and the conviction that you had around there being a right way to go about this and just making sure that all of the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted because when it comes to yeah. risk and finance and operations, to your point, these are things that generally easy for, I think, teams to overlook because it's not maybe as exciting as going out and getting new revenue or going out and getting more users. But if you don't have a very strong foundation to begin with, then exactly like you said, and exactly like we all saw, it's very easy for things to unravel very quickly in a very scary yeah. way. Also, yeah, you know what? I do want to say that we started working together February of 2021, and that's when you were already like on it about making sure that you had a proper process in place for your finances and like making sure that people were getting paid on time and all these things, which I think was really exciting for us to see as someone that we were bringing in as like a design partner or an early customer. It meant a lot to us that we were able to work with someone like you who was so serious about making sure that things were getting done right. And it's definitely had a big impact on the product that we've been able to build and the product quality that we've been able to deliver. Yeah, honestly, I think we just try to be really organized and we want things to be efficient. I love efficiency. Devil was like on mechanically like a huge part of that and still is to this day. We appreciate that. That was really validating for us because Grace and I were having conversations at that time about people taking a responsible approach to treasury management and ops management. And it was super uncool to be talking about that stuff at that time. Everybody totally. was going bananas for the potential for DAOs and it was just going to be a totally anarchistic free-for-all and that was going to be the road to salvation. And we definitely felt like we were out of step at that time, but we knew we had a deep conviction that the world was going to come around to where it is now. And you guys were way ahead of that. So it's great that we found each other. Yes, it has been a great living example of harmony and synergy. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm super happy again that we got to do this. And Me too. Yeah, is there anything that you would want to share with the listeners about Sega, anything that's upcoming or where they could learn more information? Yeah, I'd love to. So I think we want everyone to try Sega. Like anyone who has USDC should definitely learn more about how they can generate safer high yields on their USDC through Sega Vaults. Yeah, our website is CEGA period FI, and we have a really great well documentation section of the website as well that lays out all the details of the different investment strategies, the benefits, the risks, the scenarios in which users could make money and also lose money. So yeah, we've lost a lot of time into explaining these products and making sure that users are clear on what they're getting. We'd love users to try and get some great yield through Sega. And obviously if anyone has feedback on the product, on the UI UX, my DMs are always open. 
My Twitter is Z-H-N-G-W-I-N-S. We're hiring. So we're looking for a really talented derivatives trader to join the finance team. All of the job descriptions are posted on our careers portal in our Sega Notion public site. If you are that person or you know someone that could be a really great fit for Sega, please forward them to us. And then we're also looking to hire a DeFi sales lead. So in the vein of growth, we're looking to grow the team and make sure that we can get as many users to learn about Sega as possible. And so if you're a really connected DeFi expert, if you're a hustler, we'd love to talk. Nice. We'll definitely make sure to link everything in the show notes. And yeah, hopefully you hear some people reaching out about these. Can't wait.